0: Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2,152 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue on our extended series of messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 20 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Now last week we saw Jesus declaring, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In addition, we learned if we follow that light that Jesus proclaimed, that we can live in spiritual freedom. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And today, our scripture is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. And it's on page 1664 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along. And as with last week, since it is an extended passage, I'll read it as we go through the message. The setting for today's teaching is sometime after the, Fest of the Tabernac- Feast of the Tabernacles, but before the Feast of Dedication. Now you might see Feast of Dedication. Well, we refer that to that as Hanukkah, and it's listed in John chapter 10, verse 22. So somewhere in the old city of Jerusalem, this scene takes place. Jesus and his disciples just happened along a man who was born without sight. And as the story unfolds, we learn that this chance meeting that they had had been scheduled since the beginning of recorded time. The man's meaningless affliction... Was given a divine purpose from the foundation of all creation. We know that it was. Turned it too soon. So let's start in verse 1. As he was, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, John gives us very little details about the time and the place that I just mentioned of this encounter and its logical continuation of Jesus' escalating clash with the religious leaders, those who thought they knew the law better than almost God did. However, as I mentioned, it took place after, after the Feast of Tabernacles, which takes place in September, October, but before Hanukkah, which is November, December time frame, so smack dab in the middle of what we would refer to autumn, somewhere in that vicinity of Jerusalem, outside those temple complexes, And John presents this episode as something that was spontaneous. They just happened to be walking by this man who was born blind. But this wasn't a meeting that Jesus had on his appointment calendar. The apostles give the impression that this encounter was a mere coincidence. But make no mistakes, the error of randomness is intentional in John's letter here. John allows us to accept this haphazard incident only to reveal... That whereas sin has been created in this, this world which is full of chaotic mess, the Creator interjects order here. Whereas the sinful world system, because of the fall, random, things happen randomly and capaciously, and it causes affliction in our lives, or so it would seem. The Lord gives purpose to all misfortune, though. For His glory and the good of those who believe. They never change. It's the same today as it was when Jesus walked these dusty streets of Jerusalem. As we move on to verses 2 through 4, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of Him who sent me. Night is coming, when no work can, when when no work or no one can work. We sang that hymn, "Work for the night is coming," and I had to look it up because it wasn't in our hymnals. But it's—I think our kids probably would say that was my theme song growing up. I loved to work, and I would sing this song often to them. Work for the night is coming. Work for the day is our, drilling into them that we have to work while we have an opportunity. We can't squander that time. And that's what Jesus was getting across here. In those days, it was custom for people with disabilities to claim spot along the road to the temple. And it's still a common sight, even in the Middle East today, along the roads to the religious facilities. You see men and women sitting there begging And while this man was born blind, he was undoubtedly joined by a lot of other people that day on that road to the temple, begging for people to help them out. But this man, among all his peers, drew his disciples' attention, probably because they knew this man's condition was congenial rather than from a result of disease or injury. And this disability aroused their curiosity, saying, Why was this man born blind? Was it his parents' sin, or was it his sin? They couldn't figure it out. The disciples' questions reflected a common understanding that sin in the first century, Judaism, and that we think of even too bad and sadly today, that sin was a result, or afflictions was a result of sin. The disciples saw this man's affliction as a just penalty for someone's sin, whether it was his parents or maybe somehow this man sinned even before he was born. Isn't it human nature for us to try to find somebody to blame when something happens? We either blame ourselves or we blame some other situation or person. The Pharisees and the Sadducees regarded this misfortune as a direct result of someone's sin. The religious leaders of the world reduced life to quantifiable terms in which the good receives blessing and affliction is because of a penalty for wrongdoing. And that's the basis for many kings claiming their divine right because it was an easy excuse to ignore those who are in need of mercy. It makes me think of the food pantry, how they reach out to those who are most in need in our community. But we mustn't be too hard on the disciples They merely understood the worldview as it was taught to them. Their theology resulted from generations of blind men leading other blind men. Thus, the title for today's lesson is The Blind Men's Bluff. Their treatment of this man saddened me more than the disciples' ignorance. The disciples looked upon this man born blind as nothing more than somewhat of an interesting theological case study. Not a fellow human being who is in need of compassion. Their lack of emotion disturbs me somewhat also. But don't we do and have that same mindset, and we use it as an excuse not to help other people at times? You'll look at your bulletin insert on the page side with the pictures on it. This probing eye. We need to ask, each of us need to ask that question. How do we view people? Do we view them and we see somebody standing at Walmart's exit with a sign? Do we view them with disdain or do we view them with compassion? I know I struggle with that myself, thinking, certainly, with all the jobs open, can't you do something? But is that the right attitude to have? Is that the attitude of compassion? We mustn't be too hard on these disciples because we fall into the same situation. Jesus answered the question directly, and then he gave the disciples a theological principle that can be applied to our affliction and hardships that we have today. God does not cause man's affliction. The fallen world that is steeped in sin has done that. Nevertheless, the Lord gave the man affliction, a divine purpose, before anything in this world was created, the blind man lay at the intersection of that fallen world, and, which is full of affliction, in God's divine providence, his preordained choice to turn this blind man's malady into an occasion for rejoicing. He lay waiting on a predefined, preordained moment in history for Christ to just happen by to fulfill his Father's mission. Take note of the Lord's use of the pronouns in that little translation of uh, verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, the work of God is to bring salvation to the world, to all humanity, to redeem those who choose to believe. Jesus came to complete the work of God through a specific deed of complete obedience to him. And he calls us to do the same. Work for the night is coming. We need to take advantage of this time, this period of age of grace. The Lord used the images of day and night to warn us that his time in this world was coming to an end quickly. And it illustrates another theological truth here, that the time of grace, we are said to be in the age of grace The age where God has given the grace for us to choose to believe in him before Jesus returns to establish his global Eden when the world will be judged, the living and the dead. Judged to righteousness or judged that we chose to neglect and refuse to accept him. We move on to verses five through seven. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground made some mud with the, with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word meant scent. So the men went and washed, and he came home seen. Now just think about this for a minute, and I'll put gloves on my hand so when I, if I shake your hand afterwards you won't have mud on your hands. But God took what he created man by, that dust of the ground. And he took that dust of the ground which Adam was created, and I didn't spit in this jar, but we'll use water as an illustration, and he spat on the ground, and he mixed this mixture up, and he took it, and he put it on that man's eyes and smeared that mud around the man's eyes. This man had never seen the light of day before. He had never seen the beauty of the spring, the green trees, or the blooming flowers, or the blue sky, or the ocean waves. This man had no clue what the world truly looked like since he was born blind. But he did what Jesus said. As he smeared that mud on his eyes, As soon as he finished correcting the disciples' faulty theology, he declared, I am the light of the world. That say great I am that came from that burning bush when Moses went before it. And he says, Well, who do I say sent me? And from that burning bush came, I am has sent you. Tell them that I am, has given you permission. He gave sight to this man who had been born blind by spitting on the ground the substance of man's creation. Then he smeared that clay over the eyes as a single act. Jesus asserted his authority over disabilities, sin, bad theology, religion, the temple, the Sabbath, and even over those religious leaders who opposed him. And he had an opportunity because the blind man as an infant came into the world decades earlier without the ability to see. And he used this occasion for his divine providence. We can only speculate why the Lord used a mixture of saliva and clay to heal this man's eyes. Seems sort of strange to me, especially in our germophobic era, to think somebody would spit and then put it on our eyes. But it was a, a simul- similar Situation in the Greek sanitarium where where they would take mud and spread it on somebody's injuries or their eyes or their wounds for them to be healed. It was thought to have magical powers. And we know Jesus performed miracles. It wasn't magic. It was his divine sainthood. Jesus allowed this method when he healed others. In Mark chapter 3, verse 7, verse 33, he stuck his fingers in the man's ears who couldn't talk. And then he spit on him and he touched his tongue and the man could talk. And in Mark chapter 8 verse 23, he spit in the spit on the eyes it says of a man another man who was blind and then he could see things darkly and then over time he was able to see more clearly. And that is how we come to salvation. At first we don't understand it all, but as we get additional revelation from God's word as we understand it more fully, we can see it more clearly. We're never told why Jesus told this man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. John adds an editorial note, as he often does, these sidebars, I call it. The Hebrew name was sent, but we don't know why he considered that important one and included it in his gospel. But it would be idle speculation because we don't really know. But however, we do know this. Jesus was sent by his father. Jesus sent this blind man to the pool with specific instructions, then the man followed Jesus' instructions to the letter, and he received sight, just as promised. We go on to verses 8 through 12. As his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looked like him. But he said, himself said, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Sloan and wash. And I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. So Jesus didn't hang around for any glory for himself. As with many of his miracles, he left the scene because he wanted God to receive that glory. Try to imagine a scene, though. The man's community undoubtedly knew him well because he had been begging for alms for years. He was an adult at this point. He was a fixture in the community. His whole life, the Pharisees pitied him for his sin-inflicted malady. The Sadducees tisked him in condescending approval, saying, well, he received just approval of God's judgment. Maybe a few showed him compassion and gave him a few coins occasionally, while others silenced the jingling coins in their pockets as they tiptoed by. Then one day, the same man suddenly appeared in the temple, full of energy without his walking stick or his beggar's basket, marveling at the splendor of God's temple the first time he had seen it. But it must have been a marvel to him to see God's house. Remarkably, the worshipers noticed the familiar face, yet they failed to see the truth of what had really occurred. We see plenty of debate in this passage. We hear lots of questions, but where is the excitement for this man who was born blind but can now see? Where is the joy on behalf of this man who had been miraculously healed? They dragged him to inquisition instead of leading a, a path of celebration, He was made to stand before the Pharisees to answer for his healing as though he had done something wrong. The Pharisees' point of view, from their point of view, something indeed was very wrong. You recall the the disciples' original questions, who had sinned, which began a widely held assumption to physical affliction was proof positive that someone had sinned and was suffering from God's judgment. The man's sudden and miraculous healing through everything that the Pharisees had been talking about, that they knew of God and sin and justice, into doubt. Did the Lord change his mind and he no longer penalizes those who sin? Did he set aside his justice? Was this man no longer guilty of his sin? So theological questions eclipse that joyous, what should have been a joyous celebration. So we move on to verses 13 through 17. They brought, to, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Not too big a surprise there. Jesus purposely healed and performed miracles on the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received a sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. The Pharisees said... Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, referring to Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others of the Pharisees asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided among the Pharisees. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that they opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. Now John's narrative Typically, he condenses so much into a verse or two, and verse 14 suggests the man's inquisition probably occurred sometime after the Sabbath, perhaps a few days later that week. When he asked how he received a sight, he merely recounted the events as he knew them, which established a pattern for this man for the balance of his interaction with the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted the man to answer theologically. However, the man held tightly to the facts as he knew them. While the Pharisees tried to spin these facts into pre, their preconceived notions, the man wouldn't budge from the bottom line. His perspective was what he saw from Jesus' standpoint. He was a prophet. That is, a prophet was one who was sent from God. And this man knew that he had to be sent from God. So as we go on to verses 18 through 23, they still not, did not believe him that he was, been, had been born blind and had received a sight until they sent for the man's parents. "'Is this your son?' they asked. "'Is this the one that you say was born blind? "'And now how is it that he can see?' "'Well, we know he is our son,' the parents answered, "'and we know he was born blind. "'But how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. "'Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself.' His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now the Pharisees had a problem on their hands. They desperately needed to discredit Jesus to maintain their superiority before the people. Yet even according to their traditions, only an authentic man of God could perform miraculous signs. So they were in a quandary here. Therefore, this miracle must be discredited. Because a man would never cooperate, the religious leaders summoned his parents, who were hoping to uncover some additional facts that would support their intentions. This was not a search for truth. It was a deliberately sifting of the facts in which Inconvenient evidence would be set aside in favor of what they could do to build a damning case against Jesus Christ. Because Christ was their enemy. The Pharisees' campaign of fear and intimidation was well known among the people of Jerusalem. So the parents would offer nothing more than the barest facts in this case. Instead, they deferred to their son. They said, in effect, he has grown, he's not our responsibility anymore. If someone is to be punished for his testimony, you must punish him. Way to have him, parents. Way to throw your son under the bus. As we move on to 24 through 29. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner, they were referring to Jesus. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. They asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. So why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that Moses spoke of God. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And I'll point you to the middle picture of your bulletin insert. He answered, whatever he is, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind. But now I see. The Pharisees struggled to build a case against Jesus, which drove them to utter desperation, Their opening statement of this man's second inquisition reveals their predetermined conclusion. Despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary, and take note of the exchange, the Pharisees tried to persuade this man to agree with their conclusion that Jesus was a sinner. But he kept on returning to the facts because he knew the facts. It was him that was healed and made whole. So the Pharisees attempted to sift through the facts again perhaps to find some sort of inconsistency in this man's testimony. The man's response in 27 highlighted the absurdity of their question, do you want to become their disciples also? This had to slap to the Pharisees, saying, what are you guys after? I'm telling you the truth. So the Pharisees were angered at this man, so they resorted to intimidation and personal attacks, claiming that it was him that had to be straightened out, not them. So we move on to 30 through 34. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. To this, they replied, You were steeped in sin at your birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They excommunicated him from the temple. He could no longer return and worship God there to present sacrifices to God. At the beginning of the Inquisition, the man maintained a neutral stance about Jesus. The question of Jesus' identity or whether or not he was a sinner at first didn't concern the man. He says, I don't know. Whether he's a sinner or not, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. He knew only what experience told him. Once he was blind, but now he could see. And by the end, however, the Pharisees' absurd quest to condemn Jesus and actually pushed this man closer to Jesus, to genuine belief in him. His final response to the Pharisees could not have been more different than that of the invalid that we studied about in chapter 5, Of the pool of Bethesda, they healed that man who was lame for many years because he pointed to Jesus and says, that's the man, go after him. This man said that I was blind, but now I see. He can't be a sinner because he does God's will. The contrast between the man and the Pharisees could not have been more capacious. And it's highlighted in his final speech to them. The religious leaders knew the Scriptures better than anyone. They had been trained in Hebrew history and theology. Yet this man who had been born blind, supposedly because of God's punishment on him, had no no difficulty putting the facts together to arrive at the obvious conclusion. And the irony here is his response rested in the theological traditions of the Pharisees that they held most dear. If a man does miracles, he must be working on God's behalf. And that's not what they wanted to hear. At the end of the end, by the end of the Inquisition, the Pharisees had no other option to set aside the facts completely and play their trump card, their position of power. Now, in my experience, it's a clear admission of defeat whenever someone starts quoting their resume during the debate. It's more apparent when a person starts using their, po- their power to silence their opponent. The Pharisees admitted, We have no answer, so we'll excommunicate him. We'll put him out of the temple so he can't tell anyone else of his dirty secrets. Going on to verses 35 through 38, Jesus heard that he had been thrown out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one who is speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I point to the third picture on your bulletin insert. The man was brought to a point of salvation. He says, I believe. And then he worshiped him. And that should be the order of our worship of God. Once we realize our need of him, that he was the one who gave us spiritual sight Then we worship him. The man's unwillingness to set aside the truth about Jesus parallels his own miracle of becoming, getting sight after he'd been born blind. Can you imagine never seeing before and all of a sudden seeing the beauty of the world? Yet the man demonstrated uncommon courage despite, despite he knew the grave consequences of his argument back to the Pharisees would put him out of the temple. But he never wavered from it. Because now he knew Jesus as his Savior. Therefore, he, when Jesus found him, as Jesus found many in the Gospel of, of John, and by that time his heart had been prepared by the Lord to receive that Lord's invitation, so his immediate response was belief and worship. We move on to 39 through 41, the last three verses. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who who see will become blind. Now some Pharisees were with him when he and heard him say, say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Now, first glance of Jesus' statement, for judgment I have come into this world, seems to contradict John 3, 17, where he said, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And unfortunately, our English language doesn't make the distinction here, but in the Greek word, the word chrysis in chapter 3, verse 17, and the word krema, chapter 9, verse 39, both is translated Judgment. But there's a significant difference between the two. Chrisis is the act of judging someone, and Karima is the result of the judgment. It was like saying, "I didn't come into the world in a judging capacity, but how you respond to me might lead you to condemnation." In three seventeen, Jesus declared that his purpose for coming in the world was not to hold people accountable for their sin or to sit in judgment. But he will do that when he returns a second time. When he returns to establish the global Eden, he will judge the living and the dead. Those who accepted him and believed will be entered into the kingdom. Those who rejected him and disbelieved will spend eternity in hell. And that was what he was referring to here. However, the point of each encounter with Jesus is a moment of truth for each of us. Our individual response to that light is reveal, will reveal our eternal destiny. The true nature of good and evil will be exposed when subjected to the light of Christ. This point wasn't lost on the Pharisees, though. He challenged the Jesus with this question, what are we blind to? And again, in the structure of this question in the original language indicates that the person asking that question expected a negative response. In other words, the Pharisees expected Jesus to say, why, no, of course not, you are not blind. But Jesus didn't cooperate with their antics. He knew that they were spiritually blind. And Jesus' response forms a paradox. Those spiritually blind do not think that they are missing anything, therefore they don't realize their need of Jesus Christ. But those who see are those who are spiritually sensitive and see their need of a spiritual sight. Spiritually blind people conceal their sinfulness and then bluff themselves and everyone else into thinking they do not need salvation. And that's what the blind men's bluff is about. People with spiritual sight readily recognize their own sinfulness and their desperate need of a Savior. This story is about a man born blind. who received his sight, and the Pharisees who bluffed their way through their own blindness... It reminds me of the old saying I learned as a child, there are none so blind as those who will not see. And John warned us of this in his prologue in chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, when he said, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to those who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth resulting from human passion and plan, but the birth that comes from God. So, the application for our lesson today in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41 is how to respond to intimidation. The man born blind encountered a dilemma after the Lord had given him sight. He could cave into the intimidation of the Pharisees or he could hold to the truth because he knew the truth. The religious experts who ruled over him at the temple could not deny that a miracle had happened. Even his parents backed it up that it had happened. The religious experts who ruled over him pressured him, the man, to be silent. They wanted to discredit his testimony so they could discredit Jesus. But the man refused to play their silly little game. In the man's response, I see a four-point model that's worthy of our own response when we are intimidated by others. When someone in authority tries to silence the truth through intimidation, and this is on the other side of your bulletin insert. First, the man appealed to undeniable facts in verses 15, 25, and 32. In effect, it says, the truth is your real threat, not me. Secondly, the man answered directly, yet briefly, in verse 17. Answering directly but briefly leaves the enemy of truth less ammunition to destroy their target. Third, the man refused to argue, in verses 26 and 27. Refusing to argue denies the enemy of truth of the opportunity to turn debate debate into a personal matter. And fourth, the man remained fearless and resolved, in verses 30 through 33 resolving to hold tightly to the truth, deprive the enemies of truth, or the power to intimidate them any further. And By the end of the encounter, the religious elite made themselves look very foolish when their tactics failed to accomplish what they hoped to do to discredit Jesus. Having been defeated by the truth, they fell back to a flimsy credentials that they abused through the use of their power. They put him out of the temple And while the man suffered those negative consequences, he gained more than he lost. His separation from that corrupt religious institution allowed him to receive new life in Christ. Now the man could not only see physically, but his eyes were open to the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's the lesson that we have for today. God used the mud through Jesus Christ to make this man born blind to see but the greater revelation was that he saw that Jesus Christ was his Savior. And that's what we are to learn from this lesson. As we go back to chapter 8, verses 32 and 36, I tell you the truth, when you know the truth. The truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, as he did with this blind man today, you will be free indeed. And that's the lesson in John chapter 9. We are free when we know the truth and accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. And next Sunday, Jesus teaches that he is the good shepherd in the message that's titled, The Living Door. So I'd encourage you to read John chapter 10, verses 1 through 42, in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this revelation you gave to this blind man, this man born blind from birth. It was not sin of his own or his parents, but to show glory and honor to God the Father, who through this preordained occurrence allowed this man who was born blind not only to see physically, but more importantly to see spiritually. That those who are blind will see, but those who think they see and don't need Jesus Christ will be blind. Help us to understand this truth Help us to realize that there are those that are in need of our encouragement and help to show them the truth, Father, and let us stand on your truth in everything that we say and everything that we do. We pray this in Jesus' precious name, amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly... Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.